This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Broadway in Tucson. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, we'll take a closer look at sleep. It's an important part of everyone's life, but it often remains mysterious and misunderstood. Researchers at the University of Arizona have been on the forefront of sleep science for more than four decades. Hear about breakthroughs that are on the horizon and get a few tips for improving your own sleep hygiene. And author Adiba Nelson returns with a new essay about what she has found to be the most difficult part of motherhood, letting go. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. At one time or another, we've all had trouble getting to sleep. For some, insomnia is a chronic condition that can negatively impact their health and mental well-being. The Loft Cinema is offering a free screening of a new documentary called The Quest for Sleep on Sunday. It revolves around the personal stories of a group of people who live with chronic insomnia. Narrated by Octavia Spencer, the film is produced by Osmosis Films with the goal of dispelling the stigma that exists around sleep disorders. One of the consultants on the film was Dr. Michael Grandner, the director of the Sleep and Health Research Program at the University of Arizona. Here's Tony Paniagua with an interview. The Quest for Sleep is going to be shown here in Tucson very soon. Can you tell us about your role in this documentary, please? Yeah, this film crew was putting together a film about sleep, and it was really kind of a love letter to sleep and how important it is and how it impacts real people and imparting some of the science of what we know about sleep and helping people sleep. And so they asked me if I wanted to be part of it. And I said, of course. And so over the course of several months, uh, I met with them. I recorded some, some parts for the film, but I also helped them make sure that what they were saying was scientifically accurate and, and also helping them um, understand at least how I think about sleep and health in the real world. And what did you learn along the way? Well, what did I learn along the way? Um, I learned how to say things shorter so that they show up on film a little better. No, I I also really learned um, a bit about how to help tell the story of sleep from, from the perspective of sleep, where sleep is really something that is here to help us. It's here to help us uh, become who we're trying to be, get us to where we're trying to go. And our body wants to sleep. You know, this film really, I think, did a really great job in in telling that story and about what happens when we can't and, and how we can better understand what to do about that. And this is obviously a very important passion in your life, uh, this topic yeah. of sleep. It is a huge problem, is it not, for millions of people across the country and around the world? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the most recent data, it looks like about a third of people aren't getting the recommended amount of sleep. Also, about a third of people uh, say they have struggles with insomnia where they can't sleep when they're trying to. And maybe even one in 10 people actually has a diagnosable insomnia disorder that they're they're struggling with. And there's other sleep disorders too, like sleep apnea and things. And 
you know, sleep has its fingers in so many aspects of health. It's foundational to our biology. So it, it impacts our heart health, our metabolism, our immune system, our brain, our mental health, all these things sleep has roles in. And so when we don't get the sleep we need or when we don't get good quality sleep, whether it's insomnia or lack of sleep or some other sleep disorder, it, it can have an impact in our life in, in ways that are meaningful. And obviously people have been studying and discussing this topic for generations. Have yeah. we learned something in the past few years or more recently that can help us? I, I'm sure not everybody's going to be helped by a certain action or certain steps, but is there anything that you can typically say, generally say, that can help many people sleep better? Yeah. If, if I had one sleep tip for people, and this is for people who have sleep problems or people who don't, is something we call stimulus control. What it means is you want to make the bed uh, as closely tied reliably to sleep as possible. So that means if you have trouble sleeping, get out of bed. Sleep isn't something you do. Sleep is something that happens when the situation allows for it. And if the situation isn't going to allow for it, you fighting, you pushing harder uh, is just going to add energy into the system and make it harder to sleep. So actually, if you want to sleep better in the long run, if you're having trouble sleeping or if you can't fall asleep, actually get out of bed. Try again later. I should note, actually, that this alone for people who, I know it's a little oversimplified, but people who are really good at this, this alone can sometimes outperform prescription sleeping medications. There's, there's decades of data on this approach of tying the bed to sleep, and if you can't sleep, get out of bed. And I should also note that actually this was the University of Arizona back in the 70s uh, and 1980s. Uh, with Dr. Richard Bootson, who developed this approach and changed the face of sleep research. And so Arizona and Tucson actually has a very important place in sleep science history. And Dr. Grander, even though countless articles, books, uh, documentaries, films, interviews have been done about the lack of sleep and how important it is for people, do you feel that yet another documentary, yet another approach to this very important topic is useful? Yeah, actually, I think this is. Here's why. This film is not a how-to. It's not a self-help. It's not a here's a list of sleep tips. You can Google those. Anyone can. That's fine. This is a story about sleep and paints a picture of the real-life impact of people who are struggling with sleep. And, you know, I think you're right. A lot of people talk about, you know, I'm not getting enough sleep or sleep is, is something that I'm struggling with. But I think people still don't quite prioritize it. They don't really think it's impacting them in meaningful and important ways. And I think one of the things that this film does, rather than scare people or shock people or, or try and threaten them with, oh, if you don't fix this problem, bad things will happen. Instead, it's telling real stories of real people. And I bet there's going to be people watching who see themselves in these stories and think, you know, I haven't really thought about it that way. I haven't really thought about how sleep impacts my daytime because that's something that this film does that I think a lot of the other stories about sleep leave out, that sleep isn't just something that impacts your nighttime. It impacts your daytime too. And I think seeing these stories lived out might help motivate people to maybe prioritize their sleep, just like we're, just like we're trying to eat better, just like we're trying to get you know, more sunlight outside and, and physical activity and all these things we're trying to do, let's, let's add sleep on that list. And for people who are struggling, you know, there's help available uh, and, and we can help with that. 
All right. And what other projects are you working on or what else are you looking forward to doing in the next few months or years? Oh, yeah. So so um, the director of the Sleep and Health Research Program here at the university, we've got a number of really cool projects. Uh, we have one study where we're looking at sleep at the interface of behavioral and social and environmental factors and, and cardiovascular and metabolic health down at the, at the border, doing some border health work. We're doing some work looking at uh, helping people quit smoking. We're looking, we're doing some work look, using technology to help improve sleep, um, looking at what happens to the brain around 24 hours and, and why is it that um, we, we tend not to make great choices in the middle of the night, even if we are awake. Um, we've got all kinds of cool projects going on. Uh, I encourage people to um, to get involved in, in research if they're interested. You know, we depend on people to volunteer for for research, and also you know, look us up, see what we're up to, and if people have questions, they should feel free to reach out. Okay, Dr. Michael Graner, thank you very much for joining us. He was consulted and participated in the documentary "The Quest for Sleep." The Loft Cinema in Tucson will offer a free screening of the documentary The Quest for Sleep, narrated by Octavia Spencer, this Sunday, August 21st at 2 p.m. You can find information at loftcinema.org. As I said at the top of the show, the University of Arizona Health Sciences Center for Sleep and Circadian Sciences has been a leader in understanding sleep for more than four decades. To continue learning about this topic, I spoke with Dr. Syram Parthasarathy, the center's director. He'll tell us about a cutting-edge new facility that's now being built on campus thanks to a rare $5 million construction grant from the National Institutes of Health. Chronic insomnia affects about 9% of the U.S. population, and uh, insomnia, quite simply, can be associated with early mortality. Interestingly, in Tucson, we were, I was first author on a paper that we published a few years ago, where we followed a cohort dating back to 1971 uh, that was established back in 1971, and we had outcomes data over 40 years. Uh, It's one of the longest-running studies. We found that People who had persistent chronic insomnia were more likely to die from cardiovascular disease than people who had either transient insomnia or no insomnia. In your experience, does knowing as much about sleep as you know, does that help you have better sleep habits? Or do you find yourself confronted with sleepless nights sometimes also? I do. Um, And I think... uh, each one of us is a, obviously a unique human being, and there is a various combination of factors that affects our sleep. I would say about 70% of the U.S. population do experience transient or temporary insomnia. Now, that's normal. We just completed a study where we're comparing you know, medication for insomnia versus uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia administered through the Internet in a remote uh, manner. You know, through telemedicine approaches as opposed to in-person, um, it's a very interesting finding. So I, I do believe that uh, various therapeutic approaches to managing insomnia has to be personalized for the individual. I personally handle it with exercise, um, 
and uh, I don't really uh, uh, use cognitive behavioral therapy or medication, um, but I know it happens when I don't exercise as well. But that's something that may be part of the reason for the high prevalence of insomnia because it's connected to general well-being. How long have you been in this field of research? Uh, since 1998, 24 years. Yeah. What is a recent example you can give us of something that truly surprised you? The most recent thing that has really changed my thinking is the effects of the long COVID on sleep problems. And that is actually rapidly changing our, our mindset and viewpoint. Essentially what it is is that the virus seems to have what we call a neurotropic. It has an affinity for the nervous system. And there seems to be early indications that it causes chronic fatigue syndrome and meningeal encephalitis or MECFS. Uh, but it's also causing people to be excessively sleepy. And so sleep problems it ranks amongst 96 symptoms of long COVID. It ranks third or fourth, depending upon the study you look at, as the most prevalent symptom that people who have long-haul COVID are suffering from. And there's some very recent work that suggests that the virus actually creates an environment where our immune system, which would normally be able to recognize itself from foreign, it gets confused. That's because the virus combines with our body tissues and seems to make our immune system think it's foreign. And so our body's immune system starts targeting our own bodies or what we call an autoimmune condition. Something about sleep that I think few people give much consideration to is the air, um, how they're breathing while they're sleeping. Yeah, I just want to add to that mix, not just the oxygen, but also carbon dioxide. Uh, there is a strong connection between climate, housing, and sleep. And that was the reason why in the new research center, we asked for the ability to build a center that no one else in the U.S. has, which is the ability to manipulate the gases in the room so that we can mimic the situation of crowded home with windows closed and inadequate ventilation in a concrete jungle versus being able to mimic the situation of living in the countryside with open windows and better ventilation. The construction should be complete very soon, and, and this is something that uh, it's one of a kind for us to be able to do that. And it's uh, only the third uh, construction grant that we received from the NIH uh, in the history of the University of Arizona. So I just wanted to share that with you hmm. because... Um, the NIH doesn't give out construction uh, grant uh, too often, and so this is the third in history. I spoke with Sairam Parthasarathy, MD. He's the director of the Center for Sleep and Circadian Sciences and the UA Health Sciences Medical Director for the Center for Sleep Disorders at Banner University Medical Center. Author, activist, and performer Adiba Nelson has shared many key moments from her motherhood journey with us on this show. Her new essay, which first saw print in the Linden Review, talks about the hardest step yet, one that Nelson has had many years to prepare for, and more years ahead before it will become necessary. 
She calls it the letting go. I'm Adiba Nelson, and this is The Word. At hours old, she knew what she wanted, knew what she didn't want, and made no qualms about letting me know. I've known from day one that being a mom to my child was going to be the most intense job I had ever had. When she was 10 months old and received her diagnosis of bilateral schizencephaly and cerebral palsy, I understood fully just what lay ahead. My mother had been a special education teacher when I was in elementary school, and I often helped out in her classroom. I understood that cerebral palsy, like any disability, was on a spectrum. She could be very affected by it, or it could be barely noticeable. But regardless of what her disability was going to look like, I was determined to make sure that she was prepared for the world we live in without me. I don't know if this is typical for most parents, but for me, it was like a blinking neon sign, illuminating what could have been a very dark moment. Raise her to release her. I think most parents start the process of pushing children towards independence when they're babies. First, it's the weaning from the breast to the bottle, or from mom holding the bottle to baby holding the bottle independently. Then we teach them how to feed themselves fistfuls of Cheerios and spoonfuls of chocolate ice cream we gleefully wipe from their cherubic cheeks. Over time, we teach them to dress, bathe, and cross the street, all without us. We work so hard to take these tiny humans who rely on us for everything and fill them with enough moxie, smarts, and strength of character to get to this level of independence. But how do we give them the strength to let go? We're supposed to let go first. But my God, is it hard. It is a crack that starts at the very top of our heart, this letting go, and heals itself with pride. But damn, that crack. It's jagged and salty and lined with as much anxiety as it is hope. Let the world be kind to them. Let them remember everything we've taught them. Be careful. For me, the letting go, in the truest sense, started a week before my daughter's 10th birthday, when she received her first electric wheelchair. I know, 10 seems rather late to begin this letting go, but for parents of kids with disabilities, our grip loosens a little slower than other parents. We hold our breath a little longer, more often, for different reasons. Depending on what the disabilities look like, milestones might take longer to reach, if we reach them at all. We spend all day, every day, like you, filling our child up with as much self-esteem and self-determination as we can muster. But in the deep recesses of our mind, in the quiet hours when everyone is asleep, we wonder. What will their life look like without us? When is it okay to start letting go? We, my daughter and I, work toward this invisible goal, a life without mom hovering nearby. We daydream about life in the dormitories when she's in college, her first date, her first girl's trip. But on some level, I secretly wonder who will let go first, me or her? She has already mastered independent feeding, lightly assisted dressing, and monitored bathing. She has proven that she can make friends without me being there to facilitate introductions and play. And, uh, despite my rattled mom nerves, she is fully capable of attending sleepovers without me. This child, my daughter, has been asserting her independence since the day she was born. 
on May 14, 2009, roughly three hours after entering the world, she wriggled her one good arm out of her tightly swaddled blanket and proceeded to do so every time I re-swaddled her. She was not, and still is not, a girl who was going to be held to any limitations, ever. Even if the limitation is me. And I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it is. I'm simply not ready. I'm not ready for the training bras we're buying or the mascaras she's asking me to apply or the rosy hue that fills her cheeks when a certain boy comes around. I know that my job as her parent is to raise her, to release her. But in the midst of all of this, I question if I was even ready to raise, much less release her. There are so many things that I have to start thinking about now, logistically, while she's 10, that will not only dictate, but also facilitate what her releasing, and subsequently mine, will look like. I am sure that if you are a parent of a typically abled, non-neurodivergent child, you have never given thought to establishing guardianship over your child before they turn 18. But I do. And I actually have to start this process around her 16th birthday because the process is so long and so arduous. And if for some reason I don't establish guardianship or have a guardian in place should something happen to me, the state takes guardianship and becomes the decision maker for all things. How many therapy appointments she can have in a month? which procedures they're willing to pay for, and does she really need them in the first place? And my personal favorite, we don't think she really needs XYZ piece of equipment. And I have to begin setting money aside in a trust for her now, so that if for some reason something happens to me and she is unable to obtain employment, her quality of life does not change. And these are just the logistics of life. The logistics of our hearts, Hers and mine come with a completely different set of rules. And this child continues to teach me how to play the game. Case in point, May 8th, 2019. On this day, my daughter began opening the crack in my heart a little more and making sure that I understood the rules. We'd spent an entire year with her physical therapists training in her electric wheelchair so that she could learn how to navigate the world on her own. They started in a large, empty room, then learned how to move through doorways, then smaller rooms with furniture, narrow spaces, and eventually sidewalks. I was there for all of it, cheering her on, telling her to focus, not run over people, don't fall off the sidewalk, and reminding her that she was going to have to do this without me, so she better get good at it. Then the time came. She was good at it. She had to do it without me. We were taking the chair to school, and I had to let go. I watched my small person, my almost 10-year-old girl, full of spirit and moxie, power herself through the crosswalk, onto campus, and into the throng of friends waiting for her on the other side. I tried to say goodbye and give her our customary send-off, Hug, kiss, fist bump, peace out, homie. But she was off. All that independence she came out of the womb with and all of that independence we'd spent a year training for was gripped in her tiny fist, powering her onto campus 
and away from me. I stood there watching her roll away with her friends in tow, biting my lip with tears on the verge of becoming waterfalls and a lump the size of a small island in my throat. And I whispered to no one in particular, well, I guess this is how it begins. This is the letting go. I watched kids zigzag around me as they ran from the car to the school gates, parents waving from the car, and I wondered how they got to that point. The swift kiss in the car followed by a barely audible, bye mom. I imagined that how I was feeling watching my 10-year-old roll away is how those parents felt when their children were 7, 8, 9, and they no longer wanted mom or dad to walk them in. I haphazardly shuffled back to my car, holding myself together until I was in the safety of my van, where I choked into the phone. She's gone. She just rolled away without even saying goodbye to my best friend who'd been down this road twice before. And like a good best friend, she reminded me, she's doing what you raised her to do. Go. (sighs) Rumor has it that it gets easier, the letting go. And I wonder aloud to other special needs moms, does it? The answer is always no. There will always be a feather of grief floating in the air just above our pride and theirs. Because while we know we've released our babies logistically, emotionally, we are tethered. Which, I suppose, is no different from a parent of a typically able child. But for some reason, that tether just feels heavy, much heavier than it should. A few years have passed since that day in 2019, and my daughter is now rolling onto her junior high campus to her friends and away from me. The tear in my heart is still raw, the band-aid of pride still at the ready. But every now and again, this kid, this teenager that I'm raising to release, hugs me a little tighter, holds my hand a little longer, lingers to blow me a kiss and catch the one I blow back. I use these small moments, which feel like enormous fleeting moments, as evidence that she's not ready to let go either. But in my heart, I know. I know the letting go has started, for me, for her. And if I want to survive this, tear in my heart be damned, I must put some slack in our rope. Because she's letting go first. Adiba Nelson is an author, screenwriter, performer, and disability rights advocate. Her newly published memoir is called Ain't That a Mother? You can find links to many of her articles and essays at her website, The Full Nelson. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to Broadway in Tucson for their support of Arizona Spotlight.